The Dubliners of ancient Sicily, this time on Culture File, classicist and novelist Ferdia Lennon has set his debut glorious exploits in the Greek world as it's convulsed by the Peloponnesian War. That's 412 BCE for anyone who dozed off in that module. In the city-state of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, the survivors of the unsuccessful invading army of Athenians have been enslaved in the city's quarries. Two locals who decide the captives surely know the hits of the Athens stage hatch a plan to get up the Sicilian premiere of the latest from Euripides. Far away in space and time from the contemporary Hibernian metropolis, you might imagine, but not entirely in the telling of Ferdia Lennon, who came to Culture File Towers to say more. Okay, so this is taken from chapter 11, where Lampo and Gellon are looking for someone to help them fund the production and they end up on the merchant ship of a mysterious collector. I peer into the room. It's dark, though a few lamps sputter in the corner. It takes a while for my eyes to adjust because the air is smoky from the burning oil, but slowly my vision clears and I take it in. Scarlet carpets, two couches laid out like the ones you sometimes glimpse through the windows of Aristo's gaffs. Gallon is on one of those couches, a goblet in his hand. Across from him, on another couch reclining, is the fella who tried to buy the homeless bastard's rope. I can tell from the rings in his ears and the white teeth. So this is the collector. I was a little bit jaded with the convention of depicting people in the classical world as all almost sounding like they've stepped out of, you know, Lord Grantham and Downton Abbey. And in addition to that, so I wanted to jolt the reader, but also Sicily had been colonized a few hundred years before the events of this novel. So it's probable that the Greek, the version of Greek spoken there would have been a bit different. And when I was looking for a parallel to that, I didn't have to look very far. I thought of Irish Hiberno-English, where you almost have the structures of the old language plain underneath and, and, ha- and, and it, creating a language that's English, but a little bit different. Because the way you've structured things, it does make us think about the Irish-English relationship because you have the, the sort of Athen- or the Athenians or the upper-class people seem to have English accents and the <laughs> other people have uh, Irish Dublin accents. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose I was using... That, that seemed like a handy metaphor given that Athens was the great maritime power. The Peloponnesian War was mostly this war between Athens and Sparta, but essentially it brought in all of their various allies and it spread across the Greek world um, all the way over to Sicily. And in Sicily, you had people that were on the side of Athens for city-states like Catania, and then you had city-states, the majority of which that were on the side of um Sparta, because there was real fear, essentially, that Athens was, that Athens' imperialistic ambitions would not be sated, you know? Um, And essentially, what was also interesting, because we see these parallels, you know, to this day, when Athens invaded Sicily, was never presented as a war of conquest. They actually kind of um, narrated it as if it were a humanitarian intervention. Whereas behind the scenes, it was very much understood, actually, we'll, we'll set up this base and then we'll expand and we'll expand um, to the point that the idea was that if they, if they did manage to conquer Sicily, they probably might go on to Carthage afterwards and use all the various resources to go back to Greece and essentially be um, unstoppable. 
if you go to Sicily and you go to Ortigia, what you notice is about a 15-minute walk outside of the city centre, there are these limestone quarries that have been prisons. They were the prisons where thousands of Athenians were kept, and most of, most of which, most of whom would have died. And it's, a, I suppose, a very strange juxtaposition because you have the limestone quarries, then nearby you have the theatre, the, like the stone kind of theatre, ancient Greek amphitheatre of Sicily. So when the book is set, there would have been a theatre, but it would have been made from wood. Like in Athens, you know, yeah, these are the original kind of theatres were made of wood and then afterwards stone structures were built. So my two heroes, um, one is a very um, focused, theatre-obsessed, in many ways grieving kind of melancholy Syracuse and Gelon, and then his best friend, the narrator Lampo, who's a lot more exuberant, but in some way directionless. Lampo is almost along for the ride, and then he gains purpose as, as the novel goes on. The door opens behind us, and this ancient servant hobbles out, holding a tray with another golden goblet and a jug. The old man wheezes as he pours, and looks so frail I think he's going to keel over. But my cup is filled and he retreats out the same door he came in. Is that fella all right? Again, that white smile. Agenor is younger than he looks. Well, he looks about a hundred. Exactly. He's 92. Right from when I was a kid, I was fascinated. I would, you know, one of those kids who would learn off the, the names of the various Greek gods and then ask people to test me on them. I studied it in university, and that, that was my degree. And then afterwards, I did a master's in creative writing in uh, the University of East Anglia. It's, it's a short novel, but I've been working on it for quite a long time. I was wondering about how, how among historical fiction writers, like the fetish is often some, some kind of accuracy or yeah. a sort of hyper-authenticity. And I mean, you're not obsessed with that, I think maybe is the way to put it. Yeah, I'm not. I suppose as well, I feel, when you go back that far into the past, what would be... I think if, I, if I'd written this book and I'd had people sound like characters from a you know, from a George Eliot or a Dickens novel in, like, 19th century RP, people would almost be like, oh, yeah, that's accurate. But actually, it's no more accurate. And I would say, in some ways, in a, in a truer sense, less accurate than what I've tried to do, which is give a sense of the, the different classes, the colonial past. Um, and I used contemporary, a kind of more contemporary voice. I didn't want to have technological anachronisms and I feel if you, for example, if you read an Aristophanes play, and they're the only kind of um, Greek, ancient kind of Greek plays that are kind of that we have in their entirety that are set in the contemporary period about people of the day, and you'll notice that translators need to use slang and things that might seem anachronistic because they realize in order to capture that voice, the kind of more traditional. Um, 19th century depiction that we're used to doesn't really fit. Accuracy is almost impossible trying to convey that period. What I've done is a, is a kind of playful, it's playful, but I feel like I'm, it, it's to a purpose. When you look at Sicily, it's, it's these endless series of invasion and, and sites of, you know, colonial, uh, com, you know, competition down through the, you know, all the way up until World War II. So, like, after this novel is set, you know, there's a new invader, you know, there's a new invasion, and that's from the Carthaginians. So it, it never ends. And I suppose, as Thucydides says, you know, 
in his history of the Peloponnesian War, human nature being what it is, these things will happen again and again. Ferdia Lennon there on his novel Glorious Exploits. And if you're a book listener, the author has performed Glorious Exploits. He does all the voices for the audiobook version.